Chapter 8, Visitors from Zion, Three Holy Men and Their Mission I will go before your face, I will be on your right hand and on your left, and my spirit shall be in your hearts and mine angels round about you to bear you up. Doctrine and Covenants 84-88 Looking Forward with an Eye of Faith From the first divine promise made to Abraham about his posterity, the years of continuing childlessness had turned into decades of delay. And yet, as one scholar observes, still Abraham believed the promise, although from a human aspect everything spoke against it. Or as eloquently expressed by the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, By faith Abraham received the promise that in his seed all races of the world would be blessed. Time passed, the possibility was there. Abraham believed. Time passed. It was unreasonable. Abraham believed. There is no song of lamentations by Abraham, but he did not mournfully count the days while time passed. He did not look at Sarah with a suspicious glance. Abraham became old. Sarah became a laughingstock in the land, and yet he was God's elect and inheritor of the promise that in his seed all the races of the world will be blessed. What is it to be God's elect? It is to be denied in youth the wishes of youth, so as with great pains to get them fulfilled in old age. How had Abraham maintained his faith in the long-delayed promises? We have already seen his constant gratitude and praise of God to God for blessings already bestowed, apparently a key to Abraham's faith. For as one of his faithful latter-day descendants observed, I have discovered that if I insist on tormenting myself with obvious facts, I cannot hold on to the precious peace that is his gift. But if I give heartfelt praise to our Father in heaven while in the midst of my trials, he grants me instant peace, strength, and abiding hope. It is an expression of the principle articulated by Moroni, who explained that God has never worked miracles for men until after their faith, so that when they finally saw with their mortal eyes what they had hoped for, it was only after they had beheld it with an eye of faith. So had Abraham looked ahead with an eye of faith, continually leaning upon the divine promises through the years as his as he offered myriad prayers, says Josephus, for the fulfillment of those promises. In the words of the Apostle Paul, Abraham against hope believed in hope, that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken. Meanwhile, in selfless exercise of his faith and priesthood, he offered prayers for the welfare of others, including prayers for childless women, and they would conceive. God had confirmed to Abraham that his heir would be a son issuing from his own body, but nothing had been said about Sarah being the mother. Her faith had been firm, as she had interpreted the promises of posterity to Abraham as any reasonable wife would, to mean that she would be the mother. As the promises had been renewed from time, from heaven time after time, her hope and expectation had been renewed and reinvigorated. But months had turned into years as they endured the anguish of childlessness. Such an anguishing trial might well have damaged many a marital relationship, but not this one. He had simply loved her the more tenderly, making the deepening of his love for her entirely clear. Not only had he no complaints, had he made no complaints, never even mentioned the word barren, he had refused to allow anyone else to do so either. But ten years after returning from Egypt, Sarah, having always considered the promises of posterity as applying to her also, apparently began to consider another possibility, for those promises had never actually mentioned her. Was she holding up their fulfillment? Approaching Abraham, she suggested that he marry her maid Hagar. Sarah had taught Hagar the ways of the Lord, and Hagar had learned well, walking in the same path of righteousness as her mistress. Sarah's words to Abraham is reported in Genesis, the very first time Sarah speaks in the Bible. 
See how the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. I beg you, or please, now go and sleep with my maid, and perhaps I will have a son through her. By those words, according to Jewish tradition, Sarah took the blame for childlessness upon herself rather than seeking to blame her husband, and thereby demonstrated her spiritual strength. She was not jealous of her handmaid, but acted with the purest of motives, and even with the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Modern Rabbi Amos Miller comments, The secret of the wonderful marital relationship between Abraham and Sarah was that when things went wrong, neither sought to blame the other or to find fault with the other. It, fault was to be found. Each found it within himself. This remains the secret of a happy marriage to this day. Abraham and Sarah were living the law that the Lord would give to their latter-day descendants seeking to build Zion. See that ye love one another. Cease to find fault with one another. And above all things, clothe yourself with the bond of charity, as with a mantle, which is the bond of perfectness and peace. Sarah's language also implies, according to the 19th century rabbi Salmon Raphael Hirsch, that Abraham was reluctant to do what his wife was suggesting. Sarah wants to do it only for his sake, but she knows that he would not do it for his own sake. Hence, she says, perhaps I will have a son through her. If Abraham would not want to do it for his own sake, but let him do it for the sake of his wife because she wants it so badly. Such was the mutual love and the loyalty of this couple, each putting the other first, even if matters that touch the hearts most deeply. Their relationship illustrates the truth taught by President Gordon B. Hinckley, that if you make your first concern the comfort, the well-being, and the happiness of your companion, sublimating any personal concern to that loftier goal, you will be happy, and your marriage will go on throughout eternity. Modern Revelation adds that Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham because this was the law, a statement confirmed by biblical scholars who note that the obligation of an infertile wife after ten years to bring her husband a second wife to bear children. But it was also one of the greatest acts of Sarah's life, noted Erastus Snow, done out of love and integrity to her husband so that he might not be childless because she was childless. It was the ultimate sacrifice, a decision made, no doubt, after much soul-searching and prayer. Sarah was by no means giving up, nor did this mark a loss of hope. Both Rashi and Nachmanides held that Sarah still harbored the expectation that God would yet bless her someday to conceive, but that for now, as throughout her life, Sarah was acting in righteousness and under divine guidance in this matter. She was acting out of love and did not render herself distant from Abraham, but kept her heart knit together in love with his. According to a modern Muslim scholar, it was because of this unselfish act of Sarah that God would eventually reward her with a son of her own. But up to now, the yearning of her heart was not forthcoming, having grown more elusive with each passing year. Indeed, as difficult as Abraham's long trial of childlessness had been to him, Sarah must have been the one most deeply hurt by her barrenness. And yet, at this time of profound personal grief, out of greatness of her loving heart, poured forth only soothing words of hope for Abraham, as reported by Philo. Do not let the trouble of my barrenness extend to you or your kind feeling to me, to keep you from becoming what you can become, a father. For I shall have no jealousy of another woman, and if our prayers for the birth of a child are answered, the offspring will be yours in full parenthood, but surely mine also by adoption. But to avoid any suspicion of jealousy on my part, take, if you will, my handmaiden, proved and tested by me for many years from the day when she was first brought to my house, an Egyptian by birth, but a Hebrew by her rule of life. Philo further reports that Sarah's words instilled in Abraham increased admiration for the wifely love. 
which never grew old and was ever showing itself anew in her careful forethought for the future. Even still, Abraham accepted Sarah's proposal only after receiving revelation on the matter, whereupon Sarah's, Sarah magnanimously declared to Hagar, Happy art thou to be united to such a holy man. Abraham married Hagar, who immediately became pregnant, even though, in the poignant words of modern writers, as Hagar belly swelled with child, Sarah's womb remained empty. Hagar, although remembered as a woman of righteousness and faith, began to despise Sarah and treat her with contempt and disdain. Her unbearable insolence included claiming that Sarah's infertile condition proved her spiritual inferiority. Sarah's reaction is reported by Genesis, which tells that she went to Abraham and said, I am being wronged. You must do something about it. It is I who gave you my slave girl, or maid in the JPST, into your arms. But since she has known that she is pregnant, she has despised me. Genesis then reports the following words by Sarah, which words which the English reader would automatically suppose were part of what Sarah said to Abraham. The Lord decide, or let the Lord judge between you and me. These adversarial words color the immediately prior sentence, making Sarah's entire communication to Abraham appear angry and divisive. But it was Judaism's great grammarian and all-time Torah authority, Rashi, who pointed out that the Hebrew word between you is a passage... In this passage is written with a feminine indicator for the person being addressed, showing, according to Rashi and other Jewish sources, that Sarah's statement about the Lord judging was addressed not to Abraham, but to Hagar. Other Jewish sources agree that Sarah was invoking the Lord not against Abraham, but against anyone who would try to cause dissension between her and Abraham. Sarah's commitment to build Zion was being, by being of one heart with her husband was of highest priority, even when she felt wronged. By Abraham's supportive response to Sarah, your maid is in your hands, deal with her as you think right. He was apparently hoping to his soft answer would turn away Sarah's wrath. In any event, Abraham's reaction to Sarah shows that he willingly accepts any corrections that come from her. As Genesis tells, the pregnant Hagar fled, but an angel appeared to her by a spring of water in the wilderness and instructed her to return to Sarah. That her child would play an important role in God's plan is evident from the blessing the angel then pronounced upon Hagar in the name of the Lord, I will so greatly multiply your offspring that they cannot be counted for multitude. The angel even designated the name of her son she was carrying in her womb. He would be called Ishmael, meaning God has heard. For as the angel explained, the Lord had heeded Hagar in her distress. The angel further assured Hagar that the freedom she had sought would, in fact, be enjoyed by her son. The closest an English translation can come to what the angel then said about Ishmael is that he would be a wild donkey of a man, a phrase that can strike the modern ear as a pejorative, but the Hebrew word is not the term for a domesticated donkey, but rather for a particular species that lives wild in the desert and, according to biblical scholar Gordon Wenham, looks more like a horse than a donkey, and is used in the Old Testament as a figure of an individualistic lifestyle untrammeled by social convention. As explained by some of Judaism's most prominent authorities, the angel's description of Ishmael carries no negative sense whatsoever, but means a free man among men, enjoying the freedom of the desert. And according to Samson Raphael Hirsch, the angel's words in naming Ishmael and then prophesying about his freedom constituted uh, instruction to Hagar in the basic ideal she must seek to instill in her son. 
and which alone would truly make him free, an awareness of that divine providence, memorialized by the name Ishmael, God has heard, that watches over the deeds of men and assists them in their suffering. In short, Ishmael was, according to the words of the angel, destined to be a great man. Hagar returned and bore Ishmael, giving Abraham a son at long last. It was part of the divine plan, for as Latter-day Revelation explains, from Hagar sprang many people. This, therefore, was fulfilling, among other things, the promises. Islamic texts tell of the tenderness of the relationship between Abraham and Ishmael, while Jewish tradition reports that Abraham loved him. Meanwhile, the faithful Sarah remained barren. What trials God requires of his most faithful. Live in my presence, be perfect. Thirteen years had passed, years of faith, of prayer, of service, of sacrifice, of missionary and temple work, of building Zion, and of believing. By all objective criteria, God's promise to Abraham seemed impossible of fulfillment, yet Abraham continued to believe that the promise would be kept, as did Sarah. But by now they had come to miss come to understand the promises differently, for Sarah had entered menopause and had finally given up the idea that the promises of posterity to Abraham would include her as a mother. It was the ultimate disappointment for her after so many years of longing, longing expectation, selfless service, and looking forward in faith. But even now there was no word of complaint. Then suddenly, unexpectedly, the Lord appeared to Abraham. The last time Abraham had seen the Lord was in heaven, when Abraham had been taken up to the divine throne and to be shown the future of Zion, and his descendants would build it. Now the Lord descended to earth, to Abraham's abode, and spoke of their relationship, as Genesis reports, I am God Almighty, the Lord began, walk with me and be blameless. Or, as in other translations, walk in my ways and be blameless. Or, walk in my presence and be blameless. Or, live in my presence, be perfect. A rabbinic text recounts that upon hearing these words, Abraham was troubled as he mentally reviewed what he might have done amiss. Rabbi Amos Miller comments that the righteous man never feels secure in his righteousness. He is always on guard against some shortcoming in himself and strives to improve himself. It is this sensitivity to any imperfection that makes him truly righteous. Similarly, Latter-day Saints are warned that because there is a possibility that man may fall from grace and depart from the living God, the church is commanded to take heed and pray always, lest they fall into temptation, yea, and even let those who are sanctified take heed also. In Abraham's case, in fact, it was his very goodness that had prompted the revelation, according to Jewish tradition, when the Holy One saw Abraham walking in perfection and integrity of heart, he revealed himself to him and commanded Abraham to attain a perfect love, recalling Joseph Smith's statement that we are liable to fail, to fall, until we have perfect love, which comes when we have a testimony that our names are sealed in the Lamb's Book of Life. It was this attainment that God wanted for Abraham, who was also extended an invitation to enter the same fellowship once granted to Enoch and his people, while still in mortality. They had walked with God, not only Enoch, but all his people, such that the Lord came and dwelt with his people, and they dwelt in righteousness. Having read these passages in the patriarchal records, Abraham would have recognized this new commandment as an invitation to build and perfect the earthly Zion to the point where once again the Lord could dwell with his people on earth. If it was not the Lord's plan to translate Abraham's Zion, yet it could still be perfected to the point that Zion's king could dwell there. According to Lorenzo Snow, the Lord's commandment, or command to Abraham to be perfect reveals something important about God and Abraham. It reveals that God is a God of blessing who desired Abraham to prepare himself for yet further blessings. The Lord appeared to Abraham and made him 
very great promises, but before he was prepared to receive them, a certain requirement was made of him, that he should become perfect before the Lord. The command further reveals something about Abraham, who, for all of his greatness and valor, was yet mortal, subject to weakness and temptation and needing perfecting. If we could read in detail the life of Abraham or the lives of the other great and holy men, we would doubtless find that their efforts to be righteous were not always crowned with success. But they constantly sought to overcome, to win the prize, to thus prepare themselves for a fullness of glory. It is a pattern, continues Lorenzo Snow for Latter-day Saints, upon whom the Lord promises to confer the highest blessings. But like Abraham, we must prepare ourselves for them. We also are required to arrive at a state of perfection before the Lord, in a process that requires time and much patience and discipline of the mind and heart. Such striving per, per, for perfection is, in fact, the only road to Zion, for as Hugh Nibley emphasizes, Zion is perfect, flawless, and complete, not a structure in the process of building. We work for the building up of the kingdom of God on earth and the establishment of Zion. The first steps make the second possible. Hence, as the Lord once commanded Abraham to be perfect, so the Lord likewise commanded the Jews, the Nephites, and the Latter-day Saints, continue in patience until you are perfected. Abraham's own course in carrying out the commandment to be, perf to be perfect is revealed in Epiphanius' assessment of Abraham. He was perfection itself in godliness. Abraham constitutes the pattern for the process urged by Moroni in his farewell passage in the Book of Mormon, Come unto Christ and be perfected in him and deny yourself of un all ungodliness. New Parents of a Covenant Community The Lord's command to Abraham was immediately followed by a promise, And I will make my covenant between me and thee, and I will multiply thee exceedingly. At this Abraham fell on his face. Adds the Joseph Smith translation, Called upon the name of the Lord. The Lord then proceeded to explain that the new community to come through Abraham's loins would be a covenant community founded on ordinances revealed from heaven. As recounted in the Joseph Smith translation, And God talked with him, saying, My people have gone astray from my precepts, and have not kept mine ordinances which I gave unto their fathers, and they have not observed mine anointing, and the burial or baptism wherewith I commanded them, but have turned from the commandment, and taken unto themselves the washing of children, and the blood of sprinkling, and have said that the blood of the righteous Abel was shed for sins, and have not known wherein they, they were accountable before me. But as for thee, I behold, I will make a covenant with thee, and thou shalt be the father of many nations. And this covenant I make, that thy children may be known among all nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be called Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee, and I will make thee exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come of thee, and of thy seed. And I will establish a covenant of circumcision with thee, and it shall be my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee, in their generations, that thou may know, mayest know forever that children are not accountable unto me until they are eight years old. And thou shalt observe to keep all my commandments, or covenants, wherein I covenanted with thy fathers. And thou shalt keep the commandments which I have given thee with mine own mouth. And I will be a God unto thee, and to thy seed after thee. For Abraham personally, the commandment and God's explanation of it pointed not pointed him not only back to his forefathers, but also forward to his exceedingly numerous posterity, now memorialized by the momentous change in his very name. As related in other translations, your name, declared the Almighty, will no longer be Abram, exalted father, but Abraham, father of a multitude, for I will make you the father of a multitude." 
of nations. The rabbi pointed out that the additional letter added to Abraham's name, the He, he is one of the letters from the personal name of the God of Israel, Yehovah, or Yahweh, a fact perhaps symbolizing that God was sharing part of his glory and divine nature with Abraham. As noted by a 17th century clergyman, God's covenant to Abraham of a multitudinous posterity was thereby sealed in his very name. Becoming a father of many nations was one of the blessings that Abraham had long sought, probably indicating that it was a blessed blessing promised earlier to Abraham's patriarchal forebears. In fact, God's promise to Enoch, as recorded in the book of Moses, that his seed would inhabit all nations until the end of time, may well be the promise Abraham was seeking. In Abraham's case, however, this promise seemed particularly to point to Abraham's mission, not to ascend to Enoch's Zion as Abram, or exalted father, but to be the founder of a multitudinous Zion, to be built anew on earth, as Abraham, father of the multitude. Abraham is the new father of the human family, receiving the same promises given once given to Adam, as Abraham had read in the patriarchal records, that a multitude of nations shall come of thee. It is the same concept reflected in the rabbinic tradition that by this name change, Abraham was given authority over all nations of earth. From one Abraham would come many, a covenant community, even Zion, as Isaiah said. And the mother of this community would, after her decades of waiting and faith and faithfulness, be Sarah. And the Lord proceeded to explain, as for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her, and I and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Sarai's new status was thereby reflected in her new name, Sarah, which connoted royalty, and denoted that henceforth she would be a princess for all mankind. Her inclusion in the covenant was neither identical nor an afterthought, but an essential part of God's blessing to Abraham, who was now being crowned, according to Jewish traditions, through the merit of his wife, Sarah. Abraham and Sarah were to share a spiritual role which would reach out unto the nations of the world. He would, he was to become the father of the multitude of nations, and she a princess to the entire world. Abraham could not be a father of multitudes if Sarah was not crowned as a mother of the multitude. But this bestowal of her new name may have also been a divine affirmation of her mothering role she had already played for decades. For during her long agonizing wait to become a biological mother, Sarah had been a mother indeed to those around her, as she reached out in righteousness and compassion to those needing her assistance, spiritually and temporally. Sarah is the great example of what Sister Sherielle Du taught when speaking to Latter-day Saint women, she explained. Are we not all mothers? For reasons known to the Lord, some women are required to wait to have children. This delay is not easy for any righteous woman, but the Lord's timetable for each of us does not negate our nature. Some of us then must simply find other ways to mother. And all around us, there are those who need to be loved and led. As daughters of our Heavenly Father and as daughters of Eve, we are mothers and we have always been mothers. As we each have the responsibility to love and to help lead, it is forever noteworthy that Sarah became a biological mother of multitudes only after her valiant mothering of multitudes to whom she reached out in maternal love and caring. And now, having been designated by God as the biological mother of the chosen heir, and given a name indicating a princess to the nations of the world, her husband was blessed through her. In the words of Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik, they 
attain together and only together covenantal sanctity being elected by God to be the founders of God's people and community. For there is no covenant without Sarah. The covenant was entrusted to the two, man and woman, as pointed out by Rabbi Adin Steinsaltz of the few people in the Bible who undergo a change of name, the only woman to be granted the privilege was Sarah. Hence the dual change of name of both Abraham and Sarah hints at a change of essence in both Abraham and Sarah's being in their whole way of life. It is a profound transformation which involved them both equally, which has a double dimension, Abraham and Sarah together. One striking indication of this duality is the recurrent mention of the two as one unit, Abraham and Sarah, which is not found elsewhere in the Bible. They are depicted as a team, as a couple, and invariably as equals. Abraham and Sarah saw themselves, and are thus seen by future generations, not as a couple raising a family, but as a people building a society, realizing an ideal, parents of a nation. They were, in other words, the parents and founders of Zion, whose inhabitants forever after would be commanded to be their forefather and foremother. Some time had elapsed since Abraham and Sarah had relinquished the joyful expectation that their marital partnership would include participating in the greatest of God's promises to Abraham, that they would have a posterity. Now to suddenly learn that their original expectation was correct overwhelmed Abraham with emotion and he fell on his face and rejoiced, or laughed for joy. It was a laugh of joy and faith, notes a modern Jewish writer. Abraham laughed, explained Barhebraeus, because he rejoiced in the tidings. A midrash explains that he rejoiced and was happy at heart that the Almighty had promised to perform this great miracle for him. Hence, his falling to the ground was out of joyful worship, not doubt or disbelief. Against hope he believed in hope, wrote the Apostle Paul, and staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. For being fully persuaded that God had promised, he was able to perform. He considered not his own body, now dead, neither yet the deadless deadness of Sarah's womb. Abraham joy, Abraham's joyful laughter was forever memorialized in the name that God now appointed for the newborn, Isaac, meaning he laughs or he rejoices. Rabbinic tradition commenting on this event speaks of Abraham as a kind of heavenly chariot surrounded by clouds of glory. While Philo's commentary on what God told Abraham on this occasion asserts that the Lord carried him off and brought him up from earth to heaven to himself, showing himself clearly. Such a sequence of revelatory events, beginning with God's presence on earth and ending in heaven, is not unknown in scripture. God's revelation was a continually unfolding of himself and his ways to his friend, making Abraham's life a perfect illustration of Joseph Smith's statement that when we understand the character of God and how to come to him, he begins to unfold the heavens to us and to tell us about, all about it. When we are ready to come to him, he is ready to come to us. In contrast to Abraham, the world in which he lived was had gone far astray, denying not only the atonement of Christ, but also the resulting innocence of little children. And... As Christ's atoning blood was foreshadowed in the blood of animal sacrifice, so now it would be foreshadowed in the blood of circumcision that God was now commanding. It was a sign and a seal of God, says an Armenian apocryphal source, or in the words of a modern author, a covenant written into the very organ of male regeneration. And so would it be for Abraham's male posterity for many generations on the eighth day of life, a perpetual reminder that little children are alive in Christ, and not accountable until the age of eight years. For if circumcision was already extensively practiced in Abraham's day, it was only adult circumcision. 
The circumcision of infants was something new. Beginning with Abraham, infants in Zion would bear the mark in their own bodies of the future shedding of Christ's blood that had already been made them alive in Christ. Only with the advent of Christ and the shedding of blood that was foreshadowed by circumcision would the law of circumcision be fulfilled and the requirement cease. But the underlying spiritual reality represented by the circumcision would continue. The reality spoken by the Book of Mormon prophet Jacob, who foretold woe not for not for the uncircumcised of body, but for the uncircumcised of heart, said the early church father Ambrose, bodily circumcision is a sign of spiritual circumcision. Therefore the sign remained until the truth arrived. The Lord Jesus arrived, who circumcises the whole person in truth, not a minor bodily member in sign. He abolished the sign, he installed the truth. Abraham was already living the truth. He would now bear the sign. Though advanced in years, one might ask, though, if it had been God's plan for him all along, why did God wait until Abraham was so old? A rabbinic text answers that it was in order to demonstrate by Abraham's own willingness to undergo this surgery that it was never too late to convert, but perhaps also that the forefather of the Savior might bear in his own flesh, aged though it had become a sign of the blood to be shed by Jesus. Abraham's blood had not been shed on the altar in Ur when the angel of the presence had protected him from the raised knife. Now God was asking for Abraham to voluntarily shed a little of his own blood, foreshadowing the voluntary and supreme sacrifice of the greatest of his offspring, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Abraham's true to the charge and in perfect emulation of the Savior hastened to perform God's precept with eagerness and joy, not for reward nor through fear of punishment, but out of love. It is a striking similitude of the Savior's acceptance of the burden asked of him, who responded to the Father, Thy will be done, and the glory be thine forever, and then followed through by loving the world, even to the laying down of his own life for the world. The pain of surgery and its aftermath were, as recounted in Jewish tradition, one of the trials of Abraham. He felt the pain, but his concern as always, was for others, beginning with those who were circumcised on that same day. Part of the trial lay precisely in putting so many loved ones to such pain. His thoughts reached out also to the potential converts whom this new requirement might dissuade from accepting the gospel. Inquiring of the Lord on this point, Abraham was told not to worry that the Lord was in charge and was the protector of him and the world. As soon as he had received the command... Abraham proceeded to circumcise himself and all eligible mills on that very day. Not later in the day, but immediately, as seen in the Jubilees narrative, in which no sooner does the Lord finish speaking with Abraham than Abraham did as the Lord told him, in having all eligible males circumcised, including himself. Jewish tradition recounts that Abraham did not hesitate, and though neither of reward nor pain, but obeyed. With eagerness and joy... And as for the other eligible males in the household, he persuaded them with kindly words, explaining how fortunate they all were to be singled out by God and invited to keep this new commandment so that so as to enjoy a greater measure of the divine presence. This unquestionably immediate obedience, particularly in this situation, stands out as one of the signal events in his model life. Having assumed for decades that the promise of posterity was to be f fulfilled through Sarah, he had, as we have seen, finally abandoned that hope assumption, only to learn now that she indeed would become a mother. One would think that he would go to her first, but intimacy to make the promise possible would now have to wait until the Lord's new commandment of circumcision was fulfilled. 
thereby necessitating weeks of further delay before he healed sufficiently to beget a son. His prompt obedience on this occasion was later extolled among his descendants at Qumran as an example of the dedication expected of the members of the chosen community, and is remembered to this day in Judaism, in which circumcision is always performed on the eighth day of life for each male infant, and preferably in the morning, thus emulating Abraham in the eagerness to undertake the divine command. His example remains a supreme illustration of the first and foundational law of Zion, obedience. Instead of procrastinating his obedience, emphasized President Spencer W. Kimball, Abraham went out and complied in that selfsame day. Which day? According to the Perk de Rabbi Eliezer, Abraham's blood was shed on the very day that would be commemorated by Abraham's Israelite descendants as the Day of Atonement, which in turn would foreshadow the sacrifice of the Savior. The Three Visitors the recuperation period for adult circumcision is long and painful, notes a modern Jewish author, not least if the patient is 99 years old and underwent surgery without anesthetic. It was during this tender recovery period that, just three days after his circumcision, and while Abraham was yet in great pain, says Jewish tradition, that Abraham was visited by three men. Genesis reports the incident in elaborate detail, beginning with the statement that the Lord appeared to him by the terebinths of Mamre. Why a terebinth? asks a midrash. Because Abraham's Israelite descendants are like the terebinth tree, which, although it can appear dried up and dead, yet can be revived with water. So also Israel, though they might long languish in apparent spiritual death, yet when they will repent and the time of redemption will come, they will bloom and become radiant once again. So Latter-day Zion is destined to radiantly shine forth and become fair as the sun and clear as the moon. But the details of God's appearance to Abraham are not immediately clear in Genesis, for the statement that God appeared to Abraham is immediately followed by the account of Abraham's startling discovery of three men who suddenly appear before him, beginning with the detail that Abraham was sitting at the entrance of the tent as the day grew hot. It was the hottest part of the very day, says the rabbis, when the sun beating down mercilessly. As one writer recounts, Abraham sits in his tent door, enjoying the grateful, its grateful shade, and looking out on the plain of Mamre, for which the sun's fiery beams have driven men, birds, and panting beasts to such shelter as rocks and trees and tents afford. Abraham, however, was not focused on himself and his discomfort, compounded by his recent circumcision, but was worrying for travelers who might need assistance on a day like that. Notwithstanding the intense heat and his own sickness, he still sat there to invite any stray passerby. When no one came, he sent his servant to go in search of anyone needing help. Even though Abraham had planted trees for the benefit of travelers, rest stops along the way. When the servant returned without success, Abraham determined to go himself. It was then, says rabbinic tradition, that Abraham discovered the three travelers. Looking up, says Genesis, he saw three men standing near him. Their appearance, according to a rabbinic text, was sudden, as though they had fallen out of heaven. Rashi says that when Abraham caught sight of them, he appeared to be holding back as if they did not want to approach and trouble him. Abraham might easily have remained seated and simply directed a servant or subordinate to attend to these travelers. Or, says one writer, he may wait their approach, leaving them to solicit his hospitality. Not he, Abraham rises. A modern Jewish commentator notes that Excuses are always at hand and come readily to mind for those who seek them, but a true disciple of Abraham does not look for excuses. 
Abraham arose, and despite the scorching heat, and although he was in great pain from his wound, ran forward to meet them, according to the Zohar. Genesis tells that upon reaching them, he bowed himself toward the ground. Who were these three men of to whom Abraham ran? As the story unfolds in Genesis, one of them is named as the Lord himself. But according to biblical scholar Klaus Westermann, the text cannot intend to really mean what it says here. It must, sim it must mean simply that the messenger speaking had been sent by the Lord. So it is also in the Joseph Smith translation, which expressly identifies the three visitors as angels of the Lord. An identification also made by Jubilees and most rabbinic texts, one of which calls the three men ministering angels. The Lord, Joseph Smith translation reports the angels as saying that the Lord had told them, I will send you and you shall go down now, and further describes them as holy men sent forth after the order of God. The last time the phrase order of God was used in the Joseph Smith translation was in association with the translated city of Enoch, and men having this faith coming up unto the order of God were translated and taken up to heaven. The term holy men is found in a revelation to Joseph Smith, D&C 49.8, where it means, according to Joseph Fielding Smith, translated beings. That the visitors to Abraham were actually, will actually eat is further indication of their translated status, for spirits, whether pre-mortal or post-mortal, could not have eaten, nor were there any resurrected beings at the time on earth. And since, as Joseph Smith explained, there are no angels who minister to this earth, but those who do belong or have belonged to it, if Abraham's visitors were not mortal, they were necessi necessarily translated beings. But did Abraham recognize them as messengers of God? Most commentators presume that he did not. But the Joseph Smith translation adds an intriguing detail as Abraham's first addresses them. He calls them, My brethren. Nowhere else in the Abraham story does he use this form of address. But even without the benefit of the Joseph Smith translation, the medieval Jewish sage Nachmanides held that when these three angels came to Abraham, he recognized them, a view held also in early Anglo-Saxon tradition. Likewise, according to modern Jewish scholar Beno Jacob, Abraham's recognition of his visitors is indicated by both his words and his actions. Nowhere else does Abraham call himself the servant of men, as he refers to himself in Genesis when he first greets them, humbly calling himself your servant. As a magnanimous and generous as Abraham was, he entertained enough guests that he cannot possibly have received every passerby in the exuberant manner in which he was about to entertain these guests. Yet he recognizes the messengers of God. Modern scholar Gordon Wenham holds that Abraham gestures that Abraham's gestures of running and bowing to the three men expresses both the warmth of Abraham's welcome and his deep respect for his visitors. Elsewhere in Genesis, people run to greet long-lost relatives, and they bow down to the high and mighty. And according to von Setters, Abraham's obeisance to the visitors in this manner befitting only a king or deity. This is certainly more than a show of politeness. If Abraham did recognize these men, who were they? As we saw previously in an early Syriac source, Abraham had once exhibited similar enthusiasm when he bowed in greeting before Melchizedek, who, according to Philo, was Abraham's close friend. It is Philo who also adds a potentially significant detail to the Genesis report about these angels a few verses later. These verses concern one of the three visitors, reported in the traditional Genesis text to be the Lord, but the angel of the Lord in the Joseph Smith translation where the visitor says that he would not hide 
what he would do from Abraham, Philo adds the words spoken were actually Abraham my friend. And if these were the words of the angel rather than God, the angel must have already been a friend of Abraham, suggesting the intriguing possibility that one of these holy men, these translated beings, might well have been Abraham's friend Melchizedek, who now resided in Enoch's translated city of Zion. Abraham pleaded with these three angels not to pass by their servant, and he pressed them to stop and refresh themselves. Let a little water, I pray you, be fetched, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, and I will fetch a morsel of bread, and comfort ye your hearts. Abraham then sprang into action and set in motion a flurry of activity. It is worth noting, says biblical scholar Klaus Westermann, that no one is in a hurry elsewhere in the patriarchal stories. Here it is haste in the service of others. Commenting on Abraham's actions, a Jewish Midrash notes that the righteous act with speed. Abraham quickly enlisted Sarah's and the servants' help in preparing a lavish feast. And Abraham hastened into the tent of Sarah and said, Make ready quickly three measures of fine meal, knead it, and make cakes upon the hearth. And Abraham ran unto the herd and fetched a calf tender and good and gave it unto a young man who haste to dress it. The young man, according to Jewish tradition, was none other than Ishmael, whom Abraham was training in the ways of righteousness and service, not just by preaching to him, but involving him. When the mill was ready, Abraham set before his guests the tender veal along with curds and milk, and then waited on them under the tree as they are, as they ate. As a modern commentator notes, from first to last the meal is rich fare, as Abraham specifies the use of the finest and choicest of wheat flour, then selects a calf for the main dish, a rare delicacy and a sign of princely hospitality among, amongst pastoralists, and even includes milk, which was highly esteemed in the ancient Near East and was offered to the gods. In the words of another scholar, the little water and morsel of bread turned out to be a sumptuous feast for the vis visitors. The Talmud remarks that such is the way of the righteous. They promise little but perform much. And personally waiting on these guests was Abraham himself, who is completely at their service. An early Jewish source notes that our father Abraham was the greatest in the world, yet he served the angels. A telling example of what Jesus would teach that the greatest amongst his disciples would be their servant. Abraham had understood not only what he would do for the meal, but also for the washing of the visitor's feet. The burning of water to allow a visitor to wash his feet was appreciated hospitality for ancient Near Eastern travelers, whose, sandals, whose sandaled feet were constantly dusty. But some early sources insist that more than hospitality is involved on this occasion. The Zohar states that the washing of the visitor's feet was done for the purpose of ritual purity. And according to the Testament of Abraham, which, like the Joseph Smith translation, calls Abraham's three visitors holy men, it was Abraham himself who washed their feet. So said also the church fathers, who saw in Abraham's act a foreshadowing of the Savior's washing at the feet of the apostles, and an example, says Origen, of the New Testament's cleansing the dust off the feet as a testimony in the Day of Judgment, which Latter-day Revelation similarly identifies as one of the purposes of the washing or cleansing of feet. Judgment was indeed imminent for Sodom and Gomorrah, the final destination of these three angels. That the angels' feet were washed by Abraham also indicates that it may well have been the priesthood ordinance described by Joseph Smith as calculated to unite our hearts, 
that we may be one in feeling and sentiment, and that our faith may be strong, so that Satan cannot throw overthrow us, nor have any power over us here. Apparently these visitors from Enoch Zion were all of one heart, were participating in an ordinance designated to unite hearts and strengthen faith in the momentous blessing they were about to pronounce. By the mutual faith of Abraham and Sarah. The angels then asked Abraham where Sarah was, a question to which, as would soon become apparent, they already knew the answer. So why ask? The Jewish medieval Jewish scholar Rashi repeated a Talmudic tradition reporting that the ministering angels knew, indeed, where our mother Sarah was, but they asked this question in order to call attention to her modesty, and so to endear her to all the more to her husband. Another rabbinic source observes, Sarah was to be found in her tent. The verse in Psalms, all glorious is the king's daughter within the palace, means that it is the glory of a woman to be within her own home, as is exemplified by Sarah, who was to be found in her tent. But the question regarding Sarah's whereabouts was asked in a voice that she could also hear, apparently intentionally so, for what the angel is about to announce, he wants her to hear. According to the Joseph Smith translation, one of the angels blessed Abraham and said, as recorded in Genesis, I will return to you next year, and your wife, Sarah, will ha shall have a son. Why did the angel not say, as would be customary for the culture and times, that Abraham would have a son through Sarah? Perhaps out of the Lord's tender regard for Sarah, who had long, who had waited so long and sacrificed so much, having never murmured against God or her husband. As the angel spoke, Sarah was standing just out of sight behind the tent door and heard every word. Before reporting her reaction, Genesis provides an explanatory preamble. Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Or, as another translation has it, she had stopped having the periods of women. In the words of the medieval Jewish grammarian David Kimhi, old age now weighed heavily upon them. No wonder that despite Era's faith and faithfulness, and in the face of her biological reality, as an Islamic source observes, by then her heart had lost hope of giving birth to a son. Genesis continues, Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, after I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? Sarah had been sharply criticized for her behavior, beginning with her apparent eavesdropping. But as Martin Luther pointed out, the very reason that she stood near the tent door where she could hear was that she was waiting to see whether Abraham had any further instructions for her. She having already personally assisted in preparing the elaborate meal. She had been further criticized for what she said to herself, but Luther points out the very fact that it was simply to herself and not for the hearing of others is likewise to her credit. And at whose words was she laughing? The traditional Genesis text, as translated by the King James, says it was the Lord himself, Lord, who overheard Sarah's response and asked Abraham why Sarah laughed. Not so in the Joseph Smith translation, which makes it absolutely clear that it was not the Lord, but merely one of the three men. Nor had Sarah personally interacted with these men, possibly according to custom. She did not know, explains Dr. Monides, that they were angels of the Supreme One. It was at the words of an apparent human being, a traveler she knew nothing about, that she silently chuckled to herself. And her spontaneous reaction reveals, as pointed out by some of Judaism's greatest scholars, 
that she had not yet been apprised of God's promise made to Abraham shortly before, that she herself would bear a son. Perhaps Abraham had decided that it was better to let Sarah discover it as it unfolded, or more likely, he had been directed not to disclose it. Might God have even promised Abraham that he and Sarah would be visited by three messengers who would come to bestow this very blessing on Sarah and deliver the good news to her? If so, this might also explain how it was that Abraham recognized the three messengers but did not mention their identity to Sarah. What remains clear is that Sarah was caught completely off guard by the seemingly random statement of this unknown traveler, and this was the context for her silent laughter. The episode does not impugn, in the least, Sarah's faith in the Almighty. Indeed, her unfailing faith in the Lord and his purposes make her as much a model for her daughters as Abraham is for his sons, according to the Apostle Peter, who had nothing but adulation for the great matriarch. It is to this very incident and to Sarah's very words that Peter points as an example of a model wife. Sarah was submissive to Abraham, noted Peter, and called him Lord, and adds Peter to the women reading his letter, you are her daughters, so long as you do good works. Sarah's laughter had been inaudible, but one of the visitors immediately asked Abraham in a voice that Sarah could hear, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child, since I am old? As pointed out by a commentator, the speaker knows that Sarah had laughed, though he has neither seen nor heard her. The visitor's disclosure of what no mortal could have heard is thereby a disclosure of his own identity as a powerful messenger of God. But the question he asked raises further questions for the readers of this account. He knew Sarah had laughed, and he knew that she knew it, so why point it out? Was it perhaps to demonstrate to her his own divine power, so as to increase Sarah's faith in the blessing he had come to bestow? Perhaps it was, as Ephraim the Syrian maintained, a sign specifically to her who had not asked for a sign. But why did the visitor misquote, or not completely quote Sarah, who had also said that Abraham was old. Because, answered the rabbis, God loves peace and hates controversy. If the visitor had told Abraham that Sarah considered him too old to have children, it might have resulted in strife between them. God wanted to maintain their love and peace. Hence, for the sake of peace, he merely omitted her remark about Abraham. Nothing was more important to the Almighty and his messengers than maintaining between Sarah and Abraham that peace and unity that are the foundation of Zion the place from which the visitors had come. Even so, Sarah was startled at the visitor's words, and when she discovered to her surprise that her secret thoughts and emotions had been exposed, she burst forth from the tent to exclaim, I did not laugh. To which the visitor replied, Yes, you did laugh. A casual reading of the story in Genesis may leave the impression that the visitor is simply insisting on being right and decides to argue the point and have the last word. But a different impression comes to light of the identity of these men as hailing from the city of Enoch, that pristine palace pulsating with perfect love. This is a visitor not prone to argue and who has no reason to insist on being right or having the last word. Why then does he correct Sarah, perhaps again to convince her of his divine authority and yet also increase her faith in the priesthood blessing he has come to give Abraham? The angel then added, as, Genesis, as reported in Genesis, is anything too hard for the Lord? But perhaps this translation, as one modern scholar insists, misses the marvelous element of the Lord's promise and the power it contained over human weakness and limitations. Other translations render the angel's words as, Is anything too difficult for the Lord? Is anything impossible for the Lord? Is anything beyond the Lord? Is anything too marvelous for the Lord to do? Is anything too wondrous for the Lord? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? 
The words refer not only to the miracle for Abraham and Sarah, according to the Zohar, but also for the future day when the Lord will miraculously bring to pass the resurrection of the dead, the great renewal. But the words also refer, according to the Christian scripture, to the birth of him who would make the resurrection possible. Many centuries after the angel spoke to Sarah, another angel would speak to another beautiful Hebrew woman, Mary, about the miraculous birth of her son, and would then mention the imminent birth of John to her relative Elizabeth, an old and barren woman. For with God, the angel would declare to Mary, nothing shall be impossible. An intentional allusion, says scholars, to Mary's ancestor Sarah and her miraculous birth. And if Mary's faith would have bolstered would be bolstered by the allusion to her ancestor Sarah. Sarah's faith was bolstered by the son to be miraculously born to Mary. In fact, it was Sarah's faith in the son of God, her future descendant, through the son that would that she would soon bear that effectuated the miracle allowing Sarah to become a mother. Neither at any time, says Moroni, hath any wrought miracles until after their faith. Wherefore, they first believed in the Son of God. Sarah's belief in Jesus opened the door for her to become the mother to Isaac, and hence forever, and hence foremother of Jesus. Accordingly, as stated in the New Testament, the blessing of Isaac came upon strength not only of Abraham's faith, who against hope believed in hope, but also of Sarah, who through faith herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age, because she judged him faithful, who had promised. And as faith opened spiritual vistas of new visions, so Sarah's prophetic powers were such that a Jewish tradition remembers she was also known as a seer. She foresaw Israel's history and prayed to God to assist them in their tribulations. Meanwhile, in her long wait, she showed her faith by her works in her unabated zeal in gathering converts, for which God rewarded her with the desire of her heart. It was the mutual faith of Abraham and Sarah in the Lord Jesus Christ that qualified them to become parents of Israel. Indeed, the blessings left that momentous day by the three visitors from Zion was effective for both Abraham and Sarah. Jewish tradition remembers that Abraham was healed from his circumcision. Moreover, according to the Zohar, the blessing left upon them actually looked forward to the day of resurrection, when they would be restored to their pristine youth. Only then, as Latter-day Revelation makes clear, would they ultimately realize the promise of posterity, as innumerable as the stars in heaven and the sands of the seashore. The blessing left on Abraham and Sarah was thus an affirmation of their eternal marriage covenant, which is of more than historical interest to Latter-day Saints who enter into that same covenant with the same promises. For as George Q. Cannon, member of the First Presidency, reminded the Latter-day Saints in General Conference, God has promised us that we shall sit upon thrones, that we shall have crowns, and that we shall have a posterity as numerous as the stars in heaven, as countless as the sands upon the seashore. For, said he, I seal upon you the blessings of kingdoms, of thrones, of principalities, of powers, and of dominions. I seal upon you the blessings of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. I seal upon you the promise that you shall come forth in the morning of the first resurrection, clothed with glory, immortality, and eternal lives. These are the promises that are made to Latter-day Saints. The Lord promised unto Abraham that as the stars of heaven were innumerable in multitude, and as the sands of the seashore were countless, so his seed should be. That same promise has been sealed upon your heads, ye Latter-day Saints who have been faithful. Pleading for Sodom and the World Having left their blessing on Abraham and Sarah, the three angels rose up from thence, from, as noted by the Jewish scholar Sforno, 
the house where they had experienced kind hospitality. Abraham is remembered in Jewish tradition as the one who was beloved, not only by God, but by humans and angels. The three angels then look towards Sodom. That poignant look emphasizes the distinctiveness of Abraham's Zion, for as Samson Raphael Hirsch observes, Sodom offered the most striking contrast to the pure, pristine environment which these three men were just preparing to leave. At this point, the Genesis narrative tells of a remarkable dialogue between Abraham and God, beginning with God's soliloquy that he will not hide what he will do from Abraham. But the Joseph Smith translation makes it clear that the dialogue is still between Abraham and one of the angels. And the angel of the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which the Lord will do for him? The Genesis verse continues, telling why Abraham will be taken into confidence, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord, to do justice and judgment, and that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. Even though it is the angel speaking, he does so with authority from the one who sent him, making this an illustration, as Jewish tradition insists, of the principle announced by the prophet Amos, that the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto the servants his prophets. And what was the way of the Lord that Abraham would teach his posterity? It meant nothing less, says Jewish tradition, than to emulate the qualities of the Almighty himself, as he is righteous, so you be righteous. As he is compassionate, so you be compassionate. In short, the way of the Lord is the exercise of love, says a Midrash, and doing justice and righteousness includes being kind and sympathetic by doing acts such as consoling the bereaved and visiting the sick, all in emulation of Abraham and in fulfillment of his precious legacy. This declaration about Abraham teaching his children to keep the way of the Lord became an important part of the Abrahamic heritage in Judaism, which deemed it a religious duty of the father to provide proper education for his children. And according to J.H. Hertz, the last injunction of the true Jewish father to his children is that they walk in the way of the Lord and live lives of probity and goodness, a duty that gave rise to the practice of the so-called ethical will in medieval European Jewry, whereby the departing father would leave his last exhortation to his children. Only Latter-day Saints know the ancient roots of such a practice. It was Abraham himself who wrote the book of Abraham expressly for the benefit of my posterity that shall come after me. Abraham's efforts to teach and bless his posterity would be an important part of his legacy, an enduring example for that posterity to do the same. Abraham's desire to do God's will in all things, stated President Spencer W. Kimball, led him to preside over his family in righteousness. Despite all his other responsibilities, he knew that if he failed to teach and exemplify the gospel to his children, he would have failed to fulfill the most important stewardship he had received. Fathers and mothers, your foremost responsibility is your family. Having determined to confide in Abraham, the angel proceeded to explain that part of their mission was to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and the three angels then walked away toward their destination. Having rejoiced in what the Quran calls the glad tidings brought to him, namely the priesthood blessing just delivered concerning the son to be born to Sarah, Abraham is suddenly grieved for the inhabitants of the cities about to be destroyed. He could suddenly, no, he could easily have been safe and satisfied with the ble great blessing he had been promised, but felt so deeply pained for the fate of his fellow men, whom he had befriended and even rescued, that he could not help but talk this over with God. 
Following the path of the three angels who had gone ahead, Abraham drew near to Sodom, apparently reaching the heights near Hebron, where he could see Sodom and all the valley below, and as the Joseph Smith translation makes clear, began praying to him who had sent the angels. Then, according to Rashi, and seemingly the Joseph Smith Genesis translation, God actually appeared to Abraham, a remarkable fact considering what was on Abraham's mind. For Abraham was about to question the Almighty and even negotiate with him over the fate of the Sodomites, who he had been a friend. Abraham was much exercised, and God not only paid attention, but went to the trouble of coming to earth to hear his friend Abraham in person. Our Heavenly Father is more liberal in his views, stated Joseph Smith, and boundless in his mercies and blessings than we are ready to believe or receive. He will be uh, inquired of by his children. Nowhere is this better illustrated than in his incident with Abraham, surely the most remarkable instance of human intervention on record. According to the Quran, Abraham was most tender-hearted and began to plead for Lot's people, with such intensity that could have easily jeopardized Abraham's own status with the Lord. A rabbinical source states that none prayed with such fervor as Abraham on this occasion. As noted by J.H. Hertz, Abraham proved true to his name and embraces in his sympathy all the children of men. Even the wicked inhabitants of Sodom were his brothers, and his art overflows with sorrow for their doom. Far from being angry at Abraham's pleading, the Lord allowed himself to be interrogated. In fact, he listened patiently to Abraham and heard him out and answers his questions. Abraham realized, notes a modern rabbi, that praying is a dialogue. It is talking with God. But what a strange dialogue this. Wilt thou, began Abraham, also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Surely, Abraham insisted, God would not destroy the place if fifty righteous souls were there. That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked, that be far from thee. Shall not the judge of the earth do right? As a modern scholar notes, the tone of Abraham's pleading shows decisiveness and courage and emphasizes the inconceivability of God's doing anything uncharacteristic of perfect justice. One thinks immediately of another prayer by another giant of faith, the brother of Jared, who just centuries earlier had told the Lord, Thou art God of truth and canst not lie. According to the Midrash Rabbah, Abraham reminded God of his oath made at the time of Noah. Thou hast sworn not to bring a deluge upon the world. Wouldst thou evade thine oath? Not a deluge of water wilt thou bring, but a deluge of fire? Then thou hast not been true to thine oath. If thou desirest the world to endure, there can be no absolute justice. Therefore, unless thou foregoest a little, the world cannot endure. God responded that he would not destroy the place if fifty righteous could be found, but Abraham persisted. What if there were just what if there were lacking just five of the fifty? Again, God agreed. And continued Abraham, what if forty righteous souls could be found? Once again, God relented. And so it continued with Abraham aggressively lowering the number and God agreeing. As they went down to thirty, twenty, and finally to ten, whereupon the Joseph Smith translation tells, The Lord ceased speaking with Abraham. Who else but Abraham would have done such a thing, risking his own standing and the great blessings he had finally now been promised as he bargained with God over the fate of the Sodomites? Abraham did so, says a rabbinic source, hoping that perhaps they would repent. Hugh Nibley wrote of Abraham, His passion for fair play breaks all the records in his pleading for the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, to whom he owed nothing but trouble. 
He knew all about their awful wickedness, but still, Josephus observes, he felt sorry for them. He appealed directly to the Lord's sense for fairness. Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? The impressive thing is the way in which Abraham is willing to abase himself to get the best possible terms for the wicked cities, risking sorely offending the deity by questioning his justice. Far be it from thee to slay the righteous with the wicked. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? It is not an easy thing to do, especially for the most degenerate society on earth. It can be matched only by Mormon's great love for a people whom he described as utterly and hopelessly corrupt, or by the charity of Enoch, Abraham's great predecessor, who refused to be comforted until God promised to have compassion on the earth. Oh, the purity of Abraham, declared Ephraim the Syrian about the patriarch's selfless motives. W.F.P. Noble observed, The tenderness of Abraham's heart is as remarkable as his purity. Sodom was a sink of iniquity. Abraham could not but know that, and could not but hold the habits of his people in unutterable abhorrence. Yet see how he mourns its doom, regarding its sinners with such pity as filled the eyes of Jesus and drew from his heart this lamentable cry, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered thy children as a hen gathereth through chickens under her wings, and you would not. Sodom awakens all of Abraham's pity. Considerations of its enormous guilt are swallowed up in the contemplation of its impending doom. Truest, tenderest type of his own illustrious son, with the spirit that dropped in the tears and flowed in the blood of Jesus, Abraham casts himself between God's anger and the guilty city. He asks, he pleads, he prays for mercy, compassion, pity, love for sinners. Then these there is no surer mark and test in true religion. May they be found in us as in Jesus Christ, as in Abraham. If they are not found in us, the Talmud says, then are we not of Abraham? Whoever is merciful unto his fellow men is certainly of the children of our father Abraham. And whosoever is not merciful to his fellow men is certainly not of the children of our father Abraham. According to Joseph Smith, the nearer we get to our Heavenly Father, the more we are disposed to look with compassion on perishing souls. We feel that we want to take them upon our shoulders and cast their sins behind our backs. Jewish tradition tells that the intercession of his saints is mighty with God. So it was with Abraham, for when the Holy One saw how he pleaded, he praised him and declared, I love him. He loved him enough to be questioned by him about the fate of fellow mortals, in this scene that accordingly according to one scholar seems not so much a dialogue between a mortal and the almighty but rather a deliberation of a heavenly council over the fate of mankind god was deliberating with his friend abraham even as had happened earlier at the creation in the grand council in the heavens in fact one jewish text even insists that the very reason god had apprised abraham of sodom's fate was so that Abraham would plead on behalf of the wicked inhabitants. Hence, the events provide a window not only into the soul of Abraham, but also to God himself. Abraham's example invites his Latter-day Saint descendants to do the same for today's world, according to the modern prophets. President Gordon B. Hinckley declared, I heard President Lee say once to a congregation in Europe that we of this relatively small church could become the few who would save the world from destruction, as occurred when Abraham bargained with the Lord concerning the cities of the plains. Tremendous is our responsibility, and great and marvelous is our opportunity as sons and daughters of God. In Abraham's case, however, not even his mighty intercession could save Sodom and its sister cities, for ten righteous souls were not to be found there. Sodom's fate was sealed, and its destruction could not be averted. 
Not only were their deeds vile, but they had disbelieved God's prophets and rejected the good counsel which Lot had brought them from their Lord. More specifically, the Holy One gave them the opportunity of repenting, and had for decades made the mountains to tremble and brought terrors upon them in order that they might reform, yet they did not. So will it also be at the end when the latter-day revelation foretells, the Lord will lament that he has called upon the inhabitants of the earth to repent, not only by the mouth of his servants, but also by the voice of thunderings, lightnings, tempests, earthquakes, and other forms of warning, but all to no avail. The angels proceeded and removed Lot and his family out of Sodom, which the Lord then overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. He rained down fire and brimstone, or sulfurous fire, from the sky, for the angels called upon the name of the Lord for brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. It was altogether as catastrophic, one minor, uh, modern writer notes, as atomic destruction, affected probably by a great earthquake, perhaps accompanied by lightning and the ignition of natural gases and asphalt, seepages common to the region. Whatever the exact means used, the Lord annihilated those cities in the entire plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and the vegetation of the ground. What had been the most lush and fertile of all the places was violently overthrown as in a moment, suddenly transformed into an utterly harsh and hostile landscape. So it remains to this day at the southern end of the Dead Sea, one of the most inhospitable and lifeless places on the planet. But even more than a dramatic historical event, the fiery destruction from the wicked cities is a sobering type of things to come. God sent fire from heaven upon them, and is still unextinguishing in its burning, it is the ominous warning found in the Armenian apocryphal text. Jubilees asserts that the destruction of the wicked at the final judgment will be exactly as it was on Sodom, a comparison likewise letter made by the Savior as he explained to his Jewish audience about his second coming. Hence, according to three Maccabees, the Lord made the inhabitants of Sodom an example to those who should come afterward. The imminence of that future destruction is indicated by the statement made by President Gordon B. Hinckley that all of the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah haunt our society, and if the final fiery destruction of the wicked is foreshadowed by Sodom, then Abraham, unscathed though just miles away, surely foreshadows those of the righteous posterity who follow the example in paying a faithful tithe, as he had done with Melchizedek, for, as stated in modern-day Revelation, that those, those that are tithed shall not be burned at the Lord's coming. In an early Christian writing, the Apostle Peter tells that even in Abraham's day, what happened at Sodom might well have been the beginning of worldwide destruction, inasmuch as the scourge was hanging over the whole earth. How was it averted? According to Peter, by the intervention of Abraham, by who, by reason of his friendship with God, who was well pleased with him, obtained from God that the whole world should not equally perish. Similarly, a Jewish source indicates that Abraham had earnestly pled that God should not destroy the world. The man holding the keys to establish Zion over the whole earth had pled for mercy for the whole human race and obtained a reprieve. Mankind would be offered the opportunity to repent through preaching the gospel by Abraham and his posterity. In fact, that posterity was the very subject of what the angel had said the Lord would do for Abraham. To be sure, Genesis never follows through to tell us what the angel knew the Lord would do for Abraham, nor does it re relate to the fulfillment of the angel's promise to return to Abraham. Such return is, however, recorded in Jubilees, wherein the angel later, angels later tell. 
We went to meet Abraham, and we appeared to him as we had told Sarah that we would return to her. And we returned and found Sarah with child before our eyes, and we blessed him and told him everything that had been decreed concerning him, that he should not die till he was a father of yet more sons, and that he should see them before he died, but that it was through Isaac that his true descendant would be traced, and one of Isaac's sons would become a holy seed, and not be reckoned with the Gentiles. He would become the most highest portion, and all his descendants settled in the land which belongs to God, so as to be the Lord's special possession chosen out of all the nations, to be the kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And we went our way and repeated to Sarah all we had told, and they were both overjoyed. Such was the joy brought by the blessing of the messengers from the heavenly Zion for the benefit of the earthly Zion and the establishment of the future Zion through the posterity of the son about to be born pursuant to that blessing. Once again, Zion above had been sent to open the way for Zion below. 